welcome everyone to the Farm CPA podcast. I'm Paul Nefer, your host, uh, and and I have to make sure presented by Top Producer. I, I almost forgot that. Uh, uh, this is my second podcast today, and uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, they know that I'm on the road fairly often. And today is actually day tw- uh, day 28 of a 43 day trip. In today's podcast, uh, I'm. I'm I'm welcoming in Aaron Pirro from Farm Credit East in, uh, well, I'll let Aaron tell us where she's at. So Aaron, where, where are you at today? Good morning, Paul. I'm coming to you from Granby, Connecticut. So smack between New York and Boston. Okay, so is that near Hartford? Now, Connecticut's not that big. I've driven through it a couple times and it didn't take too long, but I'm just curious where Granby might be at. Yeah, you hit it on a good day, but it didn't take too long. North Central Connecticut. And uh, we were joking when I met you at the ASAC conference, do you, did, do you measure distance in time or miles because of where you are in the country? Well, now that... We had time one. Yeah, now, now, that, uh, now that I'm in uh, actually officially moving to Colorado, uh, my wife about four months ago notified me that we needed to be closer to the grandkids. So... Uh, so we're moving to Colorado. Matter of fact, my wife is showing up today at the new place that we bought with uh, U-Haul. Now we have movers moving 95% of it, but uh, she brought some beds and so on. So uh, I, my wife and I will be in our new house today. So, uh, but I would say typically, I probably do miles. Um, you know, when people ask me how far away something is, no. It's both time and miles. You know, it's very easy for us to, you know, drive 150 miles and not thinking of it. And, you know, in Connecticut, if you drove 150 miles, you'd either be in New York or Massachusetts, I think. And it might take you a couple hours. Yeah, exactly, because of the, of the traffic and so on. Yeah, my normal commute at my old place, uh, lived on a ranch outside of Dayton, Washington. Dayton's got one stoplight that I never, I think, in the morning. Of course, I go in at four or five in the morning. It's never red. And then I have one stoplight when I hit Wall Wall, and it's very rarely red. So uh, it's a 40 mile drive, and it takes about 35 to 40 minutes. But that's enough about me. Uh, you know, this the purpose of this podcast is to talk about Aaron. So why don't we start out with uh, your background, uh, where you grew up, uh, your college, uh, how you got started with. Uh, with your current role. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. And I love talking about how businesses develop. So I grew up on a sheep farm, which my parents managed, and they were very insistent that we learned business skills to go along with the actual agricultural production side of things. So we each had to pick out a lamb for 4-H, sell it at the auction and make sure that we were able to pay all of the expenses of raising that lamb each year. And that transitioned into shearing sheep to pay for college when we went off to the University of Connecticut. Uh, Both my sister and I followed that path. So I ended up working on a bachelor's degree and then a master's in agricultural economics. And in trying to figure out how to pay for that, I had applied to the local farm credit for a scholarship and they said, come on in for an interview. And I thought, well, that's a lot of work for a scholarship, but I need the money, so let's do it. And that landed me an internship, which turned into a full-time job. Well, good. So, so in your career, then you basically have worked at just one, one, one employer. Is that correct? Yep, one employer during the day, and then our family still farms. So I do have that side gig there, helping however I can. 
working on a lot of the business management things. I did start as a commercial lender, so I spent 10 years working in the credit side and then said, I'm looking for a new challenge. And that's been not only really fun, but really rewarding to move into the consulting group. Oh, golly, probably a dozen years ago. Okay. Now, I'm just uh, curious. I think you're my first sheep farmer uh, that I've had on the podcast. Now, um, you know, when you're dealing with cattle, it's Angus or Hereford. Uh, now, pigs, you know, sometimes they don't say that. But what type of sheep is this primarily for wool? Is it for meat? Or I'm just curious on that part. Yeah, there's actually two flocks in our family. So my dad will raise uh, club lambs and uh, he'll be selling them on the meat side of things. And then another flock in the family is Merino strictly for wool. And the neat part of that is that uh, Morehouse Farm was the first folks to bring super fine Merinos to the U.S. So that's kind of their claim to fame. And that'll be celebrating 40 years of raising Merinos uh, in just next year. Mm. Well, my wife and I just celebrated 40 years of being married. And uh, and uh, probably my wife deserves some type of a medal being married to me for 40 years. But uh, that's a separate conversation. So <laughs> well, it sounds like a good partnership. Yeah, no, it's worked out pretty good. So. For the listeners, let's let's do a deeper dive into what exactly is a farm business consultant? At Farm Credit, my role is to help our clients achieve their goals. And often I'll get a call about a profitability question. Maybe it's, hey, we're not making as much money as we used to. What do we need to change? We're not sure where to go from this. Or, hey, we're planning an expansion. We want to bring in a family member. How do we pay for that? And once we start down that path, because a big part of that is making the plan and understanding what questions we need to ask, inevitably we'll come up with other things that need to be addressed. So my job really is helping ask the right questions so we get to the best answer for your farm business, not just the first answer that pops up. Now, the farmers that you typically deal with, you know, a lot of farmers in the Midwest, they never really face the customers, so to speak. I mean, they deliver uh, grain to a local elevator and they never really see ultimately where that grain goes. I, I think in New England, you're you're dealing more with a farmer that actually might have some type of a road stand or et cetera. Is, is that a, a, applicable in your situation? Absolutely. So we'll have, um, we'll call them farm stands. Some folks call them farm stores, right, where you would go buy vegetables, meat, dairy products, you know, almost like a small grocery store, all the way to garden centers, greenhouses, even wineries. So it's a different layer of marketing. It's a different interaction when you're working directly with the end consumer, and it adds another layer and another part of the business that you need to be managing at the same time. It's not just when you're done producing, you you deliver it and you get to go on to the next crop. So um, what are some of, so if we take a typical um, farm stand or farm store, whatever it might be, uh, they would call you in. Is it is it to help with their accounting system? Is it to help with their marketing? Or let's go through what a couple of those things might look like. Yeah, often it'll be uh, centered around a profitability question, in which case we'll start to look at what is your farm management system in terms of the accounting? Do you have a 
system that can tell you exactly where you're making money and what's holding you back. And we'll start there because we need good information in order to make good decisions. And once we've got that structured, we'll start asking the right questions, which is, what is this not doing compared to where you want to be to meet your goals? What else do we need to achieve? And is this typical for the industry or are there opportunities that we need to take advantage of in order for you to be able to meet your goals? Often there's the cost saving that people are looking for, but in retail, the other side of that is not just efficiency, but we do have some pricing opportunities because of the unique nature of the business that not all of agriculture has. So we wanna make sure we take advantage of the right part, not just the first part. And I use that as an example because the cost of payroll is skyrocketing in a lot of places. And the first reaction, because that is one of the biggest expenses on a farm is to cut labor. But if you get rid of your people, especially your good people, that's going to hold you back. So is that yep. the right decision? We need to figure all of the inputs. Now, you know, I think a lot of people think that labor costs are high and they are, but uh, so I'm, I'm just going to compare where I'm from, Washington State. I want to see what it looks like in your area. And that'll sort of give, I think, some of the listeners out there that think their labor costs are high. Well, maybe it's not as high as it is in other parts of the country. So I'm just curious, in Connecticut or in that New England area, what is the minimum wage, so to speak, for your area? Uh, 14 and change, pretty close to 15 within the next year. Yep. New York's already so, at 15. Yeah. yeah. So it's and, similar to where you are. Yep, we're, uh, I'm guessing in 2023, I haven't looked at the final numbers, but I think we're probably approaching $16, but, Really, that's not the minimum wage because if you drive by the local McDonald's uh, store, uh, it is has big signs starting at $20 per hour. So the minimum wage in our area is easily $20 per hour. And if you're hiring somebody to work on a farm, you're approaching $30 per hour uh, just to get somebody to work on a farm. So that's that's sort of the reality that we're seeing in our area. I love that you're comparing to the opportunities, right? What does an employee have to choose from? We are always looking to keep costs down for sure, but at the same time, when we have competition out there for good help, and we do, and you want the good help, what yep. are you going to have to do to make sure that they want to work for you? And I think that's such an important part when we talk about farms and farm succession is, are you creating a business where people want to work and people want to take over? And that's what's going to attract the next generation in including employees who maybe don't have any ownership desires, but they want to be there. I think that's the key to having a successful operation. I, I agree. You know, one of my sayings, and I probably heard it somewhere, but uh, I can't remember, but uh, my saying is you can never underpay bad employees enough and you can never overpay good employees enough. So, you know, because it, and it's not just the cost of paying that employee. It's if you don't, if you're not competitive, then that person leaves and then you got to hire a new person and you got all the training costs that sometimes mm -hmm. get buried. And it, it it's just, you know, there's an incentive. There should be an incentive for that farm operation. If it's a good person, find a way to keep that good person. You said it. Yeah. Now, I guess one question I'd have for you, just for the audience out there, most of the audience is typically 
I would say Midwest corn, soybean, that type of a farmer. You know, I'm talking to somebody in Connecticut. Um, I, I'm just curious for the listeners out there. Describe what, how much territory does Farm Credit East? Um, uh, you know, where is Farm Credit East, and the type of farm operations typically that Farm Credit East would deal with? I'm, I'm just sort of curious that for the for our audience. So Farm Credit is a nationwide system of agricultural credit and divided into local service areas. So Farm Credit East reaches from Maine to western New York, all the way out to Buffalo, and then south to New Jersey. So New England, New York, and New Jersey. And if you were to look at the map of New England, New York, and New Jersey and see what kind of farms we're working with, I think dairy is still the largest part of the loan portfolio timber, horticulture, we have equine, we have tobacco, we have lots of vegetables. It's a wide variety of commodities that we work with. And then a wide variety of how folks are selling that or marketing that product. So certainly dairy producers sell right to their co-op, but we also have ones that'll bottle their own milk and create value-added products through there. So it's a wide variety of not just types of farms, but business structures and how they choose to market the product as well. You know, and, and I think that's something that I want to mention is that the American consumer, especially the American consumer that has a little bit of extra cash in their pocket, so to speak, they are more than willing to pay more for local product, for a product that they know where it comes from. Um, do you see that being true in your area? And if so, how much extra do you think you find that they're willing to pay? Oh, good question. I think it depends on the person, right? And that's the same thing with every farm operation. What you need is very unique to you and your situation. Um, but what we do see is that during the pandemic, for instance, folks flocked to the farm stores because they could supply what people needed, food. But also there was an idea that, hey, their food is coming right through their production system. So we know how it's been handled and, and they've been taking extra good care of it. And the producers I know and work with, absolutely, they do that all day. And once that relationship was established, people are finding new varieties, new things that they would not necessarily get at other stores that they're visiting. So they develop a relationship with their farmer. And I think that's something that really drives the success of a business. Right? It's that personal relationship. And you don't get that at a big store necessarily just because of the volume. So having the ability to do that and know the family that's producing, even as it grows to the point where you can't know every individual consumer does yield a market premium. Now, how much more? That's a really good question. I don't know if there's been any studies on that, but give me, give me some homework to go do. <laughs> well, it's like, uh, you know, the a good sign of a good interviewer is you ask questions that you know the person you ask the question to already has the answer. So I guess I goofed up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we're always learning and I'm just naturally curious, right? That's part of my job is to help my clients ask the right questions. Nobody has all the answers. We just have to know what direction we want to head and take it from there. Yeah. And, you know, in... It is, uh, I think people uh, don't understand exactly how much ag, especially in New York, there is. It's the number, you know, three or four dairy uh, state in the or in the country, you know, after, of course, California's one, uh, Wisconsin's two, and then it's usually between New York and Idaho for, 
for three and four. And then it's like the number two or three apple producing uh, state in the country. Uh, it does, I think it's number three in wine. You know, it, it is a very uh, ag intensive uh, state. I think people view New York as just being New York City, but really most of it is fairly rural. Oh yeah, there's a whole lot more north of that. And it's funny you talk about the, you know, what's the amount of production? I can remember a colleague, Bill Zweigbaum, ran the large dairy benchmark. So if you're into benchmarking, that was a that's a really amazing program uh, that was started by oh, Don Rogers back in the day, sort of the father of farm credit consulting. And Bill was talking about the herds that were represented in the large dairy benchmark represented one percent of all the U.S. milk supply from right here in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it is uh, uh, surprising, um, you know, how much uh, it does affect the overall uh, production in the U.S. Uh, and again, that's why, uh, and not that I'm going off on a tangent, but uh, I remember Secretary Vilsack came out a couple years ago uh, when you know they were proposing this. I'm call it the transfer tax, and it said like 90. 8% of the farmers wouldn't be affected by the by the tax. Well, that's because, you know, in the USDA database, there's like 2 million farmers, but about a million, eight of those don't generate more than $1,000 a year of revenue. So, or 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000. Uh, so it's, it's just a little misleading when they use numbers like that. Sure, the devil's always in the details. And, and what are we actually talking about? We need to yeah. understand that before we make any further decisions. Yeah. So uh, if you're you're helping a client with business consulting, then how does it then sort of evolve into uh, maybe farm succession? I mean, is there a hey, it just automatically leads that way or is it sort of evolve over time? I'm just sort of curious how you go from, let's say, business consulting to farm succession. Well, I think those words get interchanged so often. Part of my job is to figure out what are you really looking for help with and how can I be of service to you in this way? So a farm needs to be economically viable before we can even consider its future. So I always like to start there. And then we think about, all right, what's the future vision for this farm? If that's not clearly defined, that's something that absolutely needs to happen so that everybody who's working there knows what they're working towards. Family, in the line of succession or not. And when you think about the marketing pitch we as agriculture tend to do with our young people, Paul, when we talk about the kind of work on a farm, what do you say about it? So you're asking me? Yeah, so what do we say about the kind of work we do on a farm? It's hard, right? Well, it depends. Let's, 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 let's be honest. Um, I grew up on a a wheat farm out in Washington State. Um, you know, we worked hard during uh, fall planting, spring planting, and then harvest. And then for the other 40 some weeks of the year, we just waited for Mother Nature to do their work. Now, I don't view that as being hard. You know, we, we had long hours on certain days. Now, if we then shift over to a dairy producer, especially a smaller farm dairy producer, that's basically a 24 seven, 365 day job. Yes, that's hard. So uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of 
uh, if you ask somebody, uh, you know, what what happens on a farm, they're going to tout the hard work. But again, with today's technology, a lot of that hard work has disappeared. And I think that's where we're headed, right, is if we don't have the people always to do that work and we don't have enough time, how do we get that done? So that's an important part of what's that future look like. You talked about long hours, right? And there's only so many hours in the day for each of us. So what are we going to spend them on, right? And then the flip, the next part of that is the pay needs to be there so that we want to keep coming back to this. We can afford to keep coming back to this. So if we make sure those three things are part of a solid plan, that's now a marketing pitch for what that succession is. Because if I've grown up hearing that the work is hard, the hours are long, and the pay stinks, why would I want to be part of that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's the lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah, which will only go so far until my partner, my spouse says, you know, uh, you need to move to town so we can actually afford to, you know, buy braces for the kids. Exactly, exactly. Now, conversely, though, Aaron, A lot of farm kids that come back to the farm, they don't always understand exactly how much they are being paid because, you know, they're living in a house that they don't have to pay for. Mm -hmm. They're being provided a pickup that, you know, maybe there's a a side of beef that they're given every year. Their health insurance is covered, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of that is tax free to them. And if they went out in the real world, they'd find out that actually their pay on the farm is comparable or even more than they might find in the real world. I I find that happens fairly often. Um, The perception is, hey, I'm not being paid enough. Well, the reality is you're actually being paid more than you'd make in the real world. And do you sit down and do that compensation review as part of your business management? I think that's an important part to understand where you're coming from and, and what does this really equate to? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of times uh, farmers do not do a good job of that. I think if they uh, were to sit down and formally spell that out exactly, here's all the compensation you're getting, both cash and non-cash, and here's the equivalent on an after-tax or pre-tax basis, uh, I think their employees, including their family members, uh, would be uh, much more comfortable with the amount of pay that they're getting. And as you mentioned, right, there's tax benefits for that and having to replace that margin of what you would need to pay if it was taxable to you or you were paying with after tax dollars like the rest of the world. That's a big jump to make. So if we understand that and it works for our family, now we've got to think about, okay, what's the plan? Where do we want to go and how do we get there? What are the different routes that we can take? And I think one of the biggest stumbling blocks to that is having a conversation that makes it clear. So I know what I need to do as the incoming generation to satisfy the senior generation of what I'm going to show you that I'm ready to take on this challenge. So I'm looking for you to trust me and you're looking for me to respect all of the work that you've done so far and that I'm gonna be the caretaker of the business that you've started or that you've inherited and shepherded through so that this legacy outlives all of us. Are you seeing more I'm, I'm going to use the word friction. Um, and what I mean by that, I, I think like my, of course, my situation is not really that applicable. My, my dad was 47 when I was born, so I, I would not be the typical generation to generation just because of the difference in years. But 
I, I think this past generation, you know, their parents worked very hard. It then got transferred down to them. Maybe they worked um, pretty hard, but maybe not as hard as their parents had to work on the farm. And then suddenly we now have the Gen Z and so on that maybe wants it a little quicker than maybe dad wanted it from his dad. Um, do you see more and more friction there or is that perception maybe inaccurate? I think it's really unique to the individual farm because we've got some that are very clear for how succession happens and you need to work off the farm for a bit so you get an experience somewhere else bring those skills back to the farm here's how ownership transitions here's how you get to earn a seat at the table to even be considered for ownership and then here's what that looks like and then others that are kind of on the the monarchy plan, right? We have all watched what's happening in the UK as Queen Elizabeth passed, right? And her son took over at age, what, 74. Now he's in charge at a time when a lot of people are saying, hey, are you thinking about retiring? So yeah. that becomes a very nebulous existence. And I think what we see is not so much impatience to be the owner, but impatience to understand what is this plan and how and when does this happen? Because if I approach age 40 and I don't know how or when I will take over or what my next role looks like because no one's willing to have that conversation, I start to wonder if I'm in the right place. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. And also, you know, what, what happens a lot of times in that situation, again, you're in your 40s, maybe late 40s, early 50s, mom and dad are in their late 60s early 70s and and you know mom and dad would say hey when we're gone you're going to get the farm uh, you're going to take over etc uh, etc et but a lot of times what happens is either mom passes away dad passes away and then you know they get remarried to somebody that's younger to them with younger kids and then you start having the dynamics well mom and dad really aren't really viewing me or my children or myself exactly the same way and that can create lots of issues i've seen that happen way too many times absolutely and it's i mean when you think about it that's really a crummy way to you know plan a succession because in order for me to succeed you need to die yeah yeah and that's right? nobody not... wants those things you're asking me to make an impossible decision so let's talk about how we can move this business successfully from one generation to the next as ownership and management roles transition in an orderly fashion so everybody knows what to expect and make sure that everyone still has a role and a purpose that matches what they're looking for and using their skill sets and i think so often when you're starting a business, when it's um, you know new to you and you're building it, you put everything you have into it, not just financially, but emotionally and all your work. And then that becomes part of your identity. So another reason we never are able to move on from our farm roles is because it's so tied up in our identity. So I'd say for listeners, if you do nothing else now, make sure you're saving for your future outside of the farm, as well as putting money back into the farm. And make sure you have a hobby, something that you enjoy doing that has nothing to do with your business, just yeah. so that you have those for yourself when you decide you wanna make a transition in your business. That's that's really a good point because so many farmers don't have a hobby beside farming. Now, a lot of the farmers that I work with, uh, 
you know, they might enjoy snowmobiling, hunting, golfing, uh, reading or whatever it might be. And I think uh, they do a much, uh, they're much able, more able to actually retire. And it sets the business up for better success too, right? Because you can leave for a short period of time and know that your team is able to handle things without just pushing them into the deep end when you disappear forever. Yeah. And, you know, that's, uh, I've had a saying that I've said many times is a definition of management success is when you can leave for six months and the business actually runs better than if you were there. That's your whole goal is to fire yourself. So if you can fire yourself and the business runs just as good or better than you being there, you've done a very good job. And that even sets you up for a better exit strategy or another opportunity, right? Because now if I'm looking at buying that business, I'm actually buying an investment. I'm not buying a job. Exactly. Yeah. So many people think, hey, I have a successful business here. And like you say, Aaron, no, you have a job. You know, if if somebody was to buy that business, uh, you're working 3,000 hours and you're generating $80,000, $100,000 of profit, nobody's willing to pay for that because you really, you're just buying a job. Not what I'm in the market for right now. I already have a good one. <laughs> well, Aaron, I think we'll take a quick break for a sponsor message and then we'll come back. Uh, we'll have a little bit more conversation and then we'll finish up and uh, let you get back to your, uh, uh, to your uh, work for today. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host. Uh, we're going to rejoin our conversation for with Aaron Perrell from Farm Credit East in beautiful, uh, I think it was Granby, Connecticut. Did I get that right, Aaron? You did. Now, I must admit, uh, most of what I know about Connecticut is the fact that I do watch ESPN, not as much as I used to. And I know that I think that's in Bristol, Connecticut. But uh, and then I think University of Connecticut, is that in stores? It is. And I think you and I have something in common with our uh, the name of our basketball teams, don't we? Uh, we do the the Huskies. Uh, and but your Huskies have won more national championships than my Huskies have won. Although I think my Huskies won it way before your Huskies did. So that, I think that's right. It's Matter been a good run and uh, amazing to watch the progression of these different programs, right? Which are kind of little businesses in and of themselves. How do you build yeah. the bench for success in the future? Well, and of course, you're coached uh, on the women's side, Gino Arayama, if I, I probably didn't say it correctly on his last but, name, yeah. but he he's done a really good job. Uh, now, he grates some people the wrong way, but usually if you are successful, eventually you will grate some people the wrong way. But uh, 
Uh, he's been very successful on a long-term basis. I mean, it's been, what, at least 20 years uh, that he's been, uh, if not at the top, pretty close to the top. Sure has, and that's, a, that's an amazing run. And uh, now, are they going to be any good this year? <laughs> oh, my. I remember being back at the campus, right, where March Madness, uh, just, boy, the electricity around that and the year... Um, First year that both the men and the women won the national championships. You know, everything broke loose because that was something that had never been done before in the same school. So pretty amazing legacy there, too. Well, and then, of course, our audience now for this podcast are going, I thought this was a farm podcast, not a <laughs> uh, sports podcast. But, you know, you got to you got to break it up once in a while and have a, a little bit of a conversation. So uh, but uh, what do you um you're in a very, well, you're in a rural area, but you're surrounded by a lot of urban, um, um, you know, metro areas, New York, Boston. I mean, you're right smack in the middle of those two very large metro areas. What type of uh, challenges do you see that coming for your farm operations? Or is it an opportunity? Well, it's both, right? Because we have a lot of people here who are the market for our farm products, which is fantastic. But it also means they're right here watching what you're doing. So the level of communication we have to have with our neighbors and educating them about why we do things the way that we do on a farm, uh, we have a lot more opportunity to do that and also a lot more need to do that. Because if you're not familiar with how it works and, you know, why is it so dusty over there? A lot of things can be assumed if they're not having the opportunity to see that. So we've always on our farm done, um, you know, some open houses in order to invite people in so that they can actually, you know, meet the flock and ask whatever questions they have about the sheep. Our local town and our agriculture commission put that together. And I don't know how many of your listeners have agriculture commissions in their town, you know, specifically devoted to advising the town management uh, and elected officials on what's unique in the industry and what do we need to be considering in order to preserve it here? Yeah, I would say most of our areas, we have extension, but I wouldn't say we necessarily have an actual agricultural commission for the community. Um, so that probably is a little bit more unique. Uh, so again, that type of person is there to promote agriculture and make sure people understand the benefits of agriculture? Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's a town board that is convened um, annually. They elect different representatives to it, looking for folks who are involved in the industry or townspeople who want to support the industry and make sure that whatever town ordinances are passed, that it reflects what happens in the industry. So for instance, one thing that came up was what's a normal lease term for agricultural land? And well, a normal business goes year to year, right? So in agriculture, what's my incentive to better that piece of land, right? Use the right soil amendments, uh, increase the fertility so that it's going to produce more in the future if I don't know that I can rent that again. So what's the appropriate lease term? It's probably not one year. Do you see then that in your area you're seeing more three, five, seven year lease terms or or what are you seeing in your area? Uh, the result of that ended up being that town owned land that was then uh, available for farmers to lease ended up having a five year lease. OK, OK. And that definitely makes sense uh, uh, because you're right. If if it's year to year, you know, why am I going to put an investment in that may end up helping benefiting the next farmer not me but the next farmer so that that definitely is 
um, a correct way of looking at it. I guess one question I have for you, Aaron, is with the, you know, the spread of the urban area, do you see some farm operations in your area leaving because they can sell their farm for a very high profit and then they roll it over into moving maybe 50, 100, 200 miles away to find cheaper land and, and more land? Or, or, or is that really happening in your area? We certainly see that, and that's an alternative exit strategy, right? If there's no one to take over your farm operation or you'd like to enjoy turning your asset base from one type of investment to another, that is something that we have available and a lot more market than you might have in other parts of the country because people do want to build houses. Um, the downside to that is once it's a house, it's never going to go back to farmland. So that's why having a economically viable farm operation a successful farm operation is so important to keeping farms on the farmland. Good, good. So we're coming to the end of the conversation, which has been great to have with you. And and actually, this has been a little bit more unique, Aaron. I've almost talked as much as you. And you know, normally when I have these podcasts, I say very little and just let everybody talk. So I've actually enjoyed the fact that I get to talk. So, uh, but uh, I, but then I'm not sure if the audience actually enjoys that or not. <laughs> well, it's been fun either way, and I'm glad I've had the opportunity not just to meet you as I did in Oklahoma City, but to continue the conversation. Yeah. So again, uh, I always ask two uh, key questions at the end of the podcast. Uh, the first one is, uh, what keeps you up at night? Keeps me up at night. Oh, golly. I'm always replaying. What did I miss? What do we need to do next? What are the things that are coming that we haven't thought about yet? So just my mind's always going with questions. How can I help better? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, being a CPA can be very stressful, you know, especially during tax season. And I don't know if I've just been lucky, but, uh, you know, during tax season, when my head hits the pillow uh, and my wife will confirm this usually within three to four minutes i am sound asleep so uh, uh, i just don't stew at night i mean to me that's what day is for and nights for sleeping and then and then my last question is always you know what's your definition of success in farming Ah, success in farming has been building a business that someone else wants to be part of wants to take over yeah, no, that's 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 a good definition. Uh, and you know, most of the time when I ask that, it it really hardly the answer ever involves money. You know, it's just that uh, hey, we want to have something that, like you said, that people are interested in being a part of on a long term, uh, multiple generation type basis. And when you have collaboration as a core value, right, everything's better with a friend. And whether that's a family member or a key employee that you really enjoy working with, right, it's back to those relationships again and again. Exactly, exactly. Well, again, Aaron, thank you very much for doing the podcast with me today. I think maybe uh, we might do another one in a few months just to uh, uh, follow up on some other stuff. Sounds like a plan. I look forward to it. Okay. Again, this is the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neefer, your host, signing off.